Aloha. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to jump right into our text today. And we're at the latter part of our text in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. If you are new to our fellowship, we are an expositional preaching church, meaning that we main, our main sermons are usually through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And so in the last few years, we have landed in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, specifically right at the end of chapter 12, and we've calling this series in the chapter 12, The Struggle is Real, Living a Christian Life in a Fallen World. And don't we live in a fallen world, saints of God? Don't we live in a world that's not just broken, right? But at the core of the world, we are in need of redemption. Therefore, we're not just fallen, but we're lost. I've heard uh, John MacArthur says that the, the church in America does not need to be reformed. The church of America needs to be redeemed. And you know what we've been through in the last year. And what we want to do is we, want, we don't want to focus our energy on the current events that are taking place because of an expository preaching church. We want to look at the scriptures. We don't want the current events... Right to determine who we are in Christ. Right, not saying that there is no value in it. There is value, but what we want to stand on is what has tested the test of all current events: the Scriptures. We would say that the Scriptures is infallible, meaning that it's inerrant. Right? It's, it's, there is no there is no fallacy in the Scriptures. We believe that it is one hundred percent accurate. That's our conviction. At the church, and I would say it so much so that because it's all powerful, the scriptures are sufficient. All right, there's this thing called the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the three separations of the Old Testament canon. The Tanakh is is made up of three areas, right? The books of law, the books of poetry, and the books of prophets, with the kings involved in it. And in between the Tanakh and the New Testament covenant, the New Testament, right, canon, there are these literatures called extra uncanonical literature. These are situations that happen in history in real time, in real situations. But when the Bible was collectively put together in around 150, 200, 200 AD in, in Egypt, they had denounced any of the in-between extra uncanonical literature. You may know them as Maccabees, that the Catholic Church still practice reading today. In our understanding of how the scripture was canonized, we, we use that as historical understanding, but not, listen to me, infallible research. Infallible word. The infallible word of God is made up of the Tanakh, right, and the New Testament, there's no in-between that's, uh, that's infallible, a part of those two Old and New Testament covenants. Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. And this simply means that God has made a covenant with his people that through his people, who we believe is Israel, would advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so us Hawaiians today know Jesus because of this promise that was fulfilled in his sacrifice, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and soon to come back home and get us. Hallelujah. Can I get a witness out there, right? These are the scriptures that are canonized and has full weight and full authority. And so we come to this part in our scripture from the end of chapter 11 to now in the end of chapter 12, there's a conversation happening in the temple from Passion Week. You will be remembered, right? There was a situation in the temple from Passion Week, where Jesus is riding on a donkey, donkey fulfilling an Old Testament covenant, a promise of his messianic position as Savior of the Jews and Savior of the world. He ends up in the, on that donkey at the temple viewing. We don't know exactly what that meant. He just went in the temple, he viewed, and then he left the city. The next day, he comes back on the scene, and Jesus gets all gangster, and he's throwing tables up in the air and whipping people out of the temple because of his misuse of the temple. They weren't praying. They weren't worshiping. They used it as a den of thieves and robbers, selling things in it, right? 
I wonder what Jesus would look like when he came into our church in America today. Right? Would he flip tables? Will he whip people out of the, the, the churches, so to so speak? Right? I think so. In the chaos that we have made, right? And so Jesus begins in this long conversation from the end of chapter 11 to chapter 12, okay? With these religious rulers. We know as the high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, and the scribes, as we seen last week. And they asked him all these theological questions. And Jesus asks, answers some of them with some clear answers, but some rhetorical. And the things they covered in this conversation from the end of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 12 is the authority of Christ. Where does it come from? The sacrifice of Christ in the parable of the tenants. The taxes, government, giving to the Lord. Are we to give to Caesar? Are we to give to the Lord? What does it look like? We covered these questions. The resurrection of the nation of Israel. The great commandment, the Shema prayer, that we shall love the Lord God with all our heart, body, mind, soul, and strength. And you should love your enemies like wise. And last week, there's a shift that takes place. The questions has stopped from the religious ruler's view. And now Jesus jumps on the scene, and now he's questioning the religious rulers. And he's asked the question, who is the Christ? And we identified last week that the Christ is, say it out loud, Jesus. Very clear. And so what I want us to do is I want us to find this struggle. I want us to look at the tension in this fallen world, not through our context or our cultural relevancy or irrelevancy, whatever you want to say, but through the lens of Scripture. I want us to see how the life of Jesus demonstrates pure holiness, pure righteousness through struggles, through suffering. I will let you know that one of the marks of a true believer in Jesus is your suffering. Oh, a little bit amens this morning. Your one of the mark, meaning to determine, one of the determinants, determinations of your true conversion in the Lord Jesus, being a true Christian, is dealt with suffering. And not so much how we react to suffering, but do you suffer? Not in the reaction phase, just the position. Do you suffer? And as one of your kahus here over this platform, looking into your eyes, yeah, there's a lot of suffering going on in these families. It, it may not be understandable through the lens of the gospel, but Jesus gives us clear understanding. Hallelujah, amen, right? And we get to this portion of the text where it gets a little tense in the temple. So much so, I would say this is the last time Jesus is in the temple. This is considered Passion Week in the Gospel of Mark. They think that this is Wednesday. So just two more days to Jesus is crucified. Just one more day to Jesus anoint, washes the feet of his disciples and have the Lord's Supper and is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? This historical analysis of the Savior of the world living life boldly in the face of suffering, the, safe, the, the, the face of persecution. And so what I want us to do is I want to stand up in the reading of God's Word, and I want us to read these verses in light of the historical analysis you were just given. Mokoko. Jesus said this in verse 38 of chapter 12 of Mark. And in his teaching, Jesus said, beware of the who? Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour, say that word again, devour widows, houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasure in the temple and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to him, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. 
for they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her what? Poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. God, I pray that you would give us insight. I pray that you would give us clarity. I pray that we would understand that these verses um, is only articulated and comprehended by the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit works in our mana'o, in our mind, God, is through verse by verse exegesis, Father. Expository preaching. So, Lord, we pray that we would be a church that's founded on a biblical theological framework of study. That's through the exposition. That's through the exposing the text. Letting the scriptures interpret the scriptures. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're teaching us through this struggle. Though the struggle is real, God, your grace is greater. It's in your name we pray. God's Ohana says, Amen. You may be seated, everybody. The title of our series, within our series today, is called Religious Chaos. The word religion is actually looked at a bad way in the last 20 years. The word religion has actually been redefined based on the culture and context of what it has become. The word religion actually means a set of rules and a system that we adhere to. But the gospel of Jesus tells us that we cannot obey any rules. We cannot set our feet on these traditional orthodoxy um, laws and regulation that was created, whether it was by God or man, because apart from God, we're sinful, we're depraved, and we're in need not just of help, we're in need of someone to do the work. I'm not good enough, Hines. I'm going to promise you that. I'm not good enough to save you. I don't have the power to save you. Your cows, your alakai here in the church, we have nothing. The only thing we bring to this church, to the table of grace, is the sin that was necessary for the God-man, Jesus, to die on your behalf. I cannot die for you and save you. You can't do the same for your spouses. You can't do the same for your children. But what I can do, you ready? What we can do is we can point you to the scriptures, the authority, the word of God, which has tested world wars, tested the times of this earth, which has tested everything, and which God has preserved from beginning to now and to the end, his scriptures. Don't look from within. You're evil. How do we know? Look at your children. Oh, they're so pretty. No, they're little balls of sin. I'm going to tell you that right now. Who teaches children how to nag, y'all? Sin. It's their nature. Let me take it a step further. Who teaches you adults how to sin? It's your nature. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. And this is what makes grace more better, if I could say that in this context, right? Not going to work if I said it in Tennessee that way. Well, make it more honor, more better, yeah? Is that God... In his loving kindness. When we were at our worst, God gave us his best. His son, Jesus. I'm not going to wait to the end to proclaim the name that is above every name, right? Right at the front end, the story is about Jesus. It's not about his disciples. It's not about his church. It's about Jesus primarily. And there is a system, a religious chaos going on in God's temple itself. And Jesus came to correct that. So the struggle for today's verses is religious chaos. In a world where there's so much religions, in a world where there's so much denomination within one religion, you got to get a witness, right? Thousands upon thousands. And it depends if you believe in all the gifts or you only believe in the gifts that's, that the cessationists believe or you believe in all the gifts as well as the continuous gifts, the apostolic gifts, whatever it is. You may not even understand what I'm saying, but all I know is that there is religious chaos and there's nobody's fault but humanity so so before we even get to some of these rich meat about being redeemed and restored let's start there let's start with the framework that america has renounced sin the bible's still the same the bible still calls people to repent 
The Bible still calls people to receive the gospel. The Bible still calls people to reform back to the scriptures. You cannot change God's methodology or means for salvation. Because this is how you feel today, Hawaiian. Shame on you. Shame on me. The Bible was written in context of the Bible. We can't just look at it and say, oh, this is how it speaks to me today. You can't start there. You have to start from when it was written. And that's what makes us passionate about the word. God, revealed to me, not what I think it means, revealed to me what the text means. Therefore, if you've been with us for the last few weeks and you've been watching online, you know that there's a systematic order and a biblical theological historical complex of what's going on in this narrative today. And that there is sinful acts in God's perfect temple. But the people is imperfect. And I'm talking about the pastors. I'm talking about the leaders of the church. They're imperfect, and we see that in this conversation. And so what I want to see in exegeting this text, I want you to see a few truths, right? Two major fallacies that's happening in the temple, right? Number one, beware of religious power. Beware of religious power. Look at verse 38. In his, it says, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Right, who are, who are these scribes? Well, let's look at, let's break it down. These scribes, first off, here's two fallacies of the scribes themselves in this religious, in this religious chaos. Number one, they were leaders who loved to be noticed. They walked around in public, as these verses say. They wore the nice Versace, whatever name brand clothing there was, right? They, for them, it was the, the talent. It was the extra garment outside of their inner garment. They showed off their apparel and what they looked like. These were the scribes. They wanted to be noticed. They had the best seats in the house, specifically in the temple. They sat in front of the stage where everybody could see them. Now you guys are thinking about some churches in long old days, all those elders and all those people sitting up in front, right? I'm not saying that's all wrong, but that's what these scribes did. They wanted to be noticed. They had the best meals in the temple. That's why you aunties need to stop making me all these big monocale plates before everybody eat. You make me feel like I am a freaking fallacy right over here. Stop making me food. That's why I look like this. They prayed extravagant prayers. Prayers that sounded withy, right? Like lengthy, like long prayers, right? Prayers that was filled with theological precepts and concepts. Big hyperbolical terms and words, right? This were the scribes. And secondly, here's the second fallacy. There were leaders who abused the poor. Look at the verses. It's clear right there. From verses 38 to verse 40, they stole from the widows. We don't know what they stole exactly, but we get one idea as we exegete these verses, what that looks like. The scribes, unlike the high priests and Pharisees, the scribes were forbidden to receive payment from the temple. Meaning, with all their theological works and writings, they still had to make a wage. They couldn't be like the high priests and the Pharisees that got money from the temple. That, that was their job. They, they were your bifurcational people. In some sense, they were Kahumarkis. They were Alakai, like Ian and, and Kane, who are bivocational ministers of the gospel in this church. Now, I'm not saying that, they, that these three men are, are fallacies. No, man, we got the best Alakai, amen, church, who loves the Lord and who loves the church. And so they had to make their own living. They usually had a job in addition to their responsibilities as the role of scribe. In this case, they used their religious power to rob widows. You may say, what does this look like today? This is the prosperity gospel on television today. This is, we've been preaching this for years. These are the preachers that I grew up listening to, the denomination I grew up in, where preachers and televangelists would say, all you have to do is sow a seed of $100, and God will multiply that. Well, what if God does not multiply it? Either you're a liar, or they will say, I do not have enough what? Faith. 
We know that's not true biblically. Man is not born with faith. Man is given faith on the point of conversion and salvation. It's not the lack of faith because of what we're going through. No. God is teaching us how to trust him alone. Whether or not we have money or no money. If you're going to be a true preacher of the gospel, right? If you want to be a true preacher of the gospel, as God called you to be, listen to me. Don't look to the televangelist of what that looks like. Because if you're going to be a true preacher of the gospel, you're going to have to preach some hard things that not make you rich, but make you broke. I don't preach for popularity votes. Our, our cows, our alakai, they don't preach for popularity votes. Because I promise you every week, somebody going to catch feelings in Ohana Church. Somebody going to catch feelings. In fact, their feelings will catch feelings and that feelings will catch more feelings. And so as Hawaiians, tribal culture, we go pupuli. We go crazy. We're like scrap. That's our MO. That's what we want to do. But what God is doing, God is weeding out of you what don't look like his son. But these scribes were religious bullies. They were paganistic and heathenistic in that sense. James Brooks says this, that they may have expected generous sums for innocent widows for praying for them. Note the reference to prayer, that they prayed extravagant prayers in the text. The reference might not be to, personally, to be personal gain, but to, exact, to exaction for the benefit of religious institution. Their heart for praying for these people wasn't for the people, but was for the institution. Listen to me. The church doesn't need more poetic preachers. The church does not need more cool rock star preachers with puka in their pants and all that stuff and got the biggest muscles and handsome. and all. The church doesn't need none of them. You know what the church need? Jesus. A humble servant born in a manger next to doo-doo. They don't need an Alexander the Great. They don't need these big name Leaders in nations, right? They don't need this very got-together kahu. No, they need Jesus. The scriptures, it's all about Jesus. This is the prosperity gospel. This is what we see all over television. These are seen predominantly in popular television televangelists. However, because of their influence, this is also seen in many unknown, unpopular churches all around the world because what they base their theology and doctrine on is not what saith the Lord, but what saith the televangelist on that TV. So if God wants him to have a $8,800 million, whatever, plane, then God must want me to have an $88 million plane. That is not the God I see in Scripture. In fact, God done more with less in Scripture than he's done with anything else. It's true. Right? So like the scribes, these televangelists wear all the expensive designer outfit. They abuse they abuse for self-gain. They want to be noticed, maybe because they were always considered the lower class, right? Specifically the scribes, they considered the lower class. Think about it. They had to make another way of living outside of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, high priests and elders. Uh, and maybe this is what some televangelists do today. But the reality is the false teacher's faith is significant. You who preach the word of God, which is all believers, if you're a true believer, but specifically the ones who call themselves pastor. Hilo is known since, I, since we moved here when I was a little boy from Oahu Island. Since the 80s, we have all these self-proclaimed prophets and apostles that walk the street and pastors, but they have no sheep. Those who are called this title will have a harsh faith. In fact, it says in James 3.1, the brother of Jesus says this, those who preach falsely will inherit a stricter judgment. Right? We can notice that this will be a strict judgment in hell. John, Paul, Peter, Jude, they all have something in common. 
with Jesus in their writings. Here's what they have something in common. They confront the issue of false teachers in the church. You don't see much of that going on today. We talk about all these visions and new signs and new wonders. But that's the problem. They're forsaking the main vision and the main sign. The word of God. The scripture. I'm not saying that I'm 100 a sensationist. I'm a continuous. You guys know that. I believe God can heal. I believe God can do things that is, that is way beyond our imagination. But it has to be in accordance. Tell me out with the scriptures. We can't make up things. There's a preacher right now in Nashville, Tennessee, famous about his visions, signs, and wonders. Since COVID happened, none of it has come true. In the Old Testament, if you falsified a prophecy, guess what happened to you by law? You was conked on the head with stones, mocked, died, did, aloha, destruction, harshest, strictest judgment. In Hilo, we have churches, prosperity churches, that call in all these prosperity gospel preachers into the church, thinking that if he just come and give a word from his manao, his mind, whatever the case is, then, man, we can follow Jesus closer. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Listen to me. Even if I'm not the kahu of this church, you guys have a greater kahu who is more faithful, who's more truer, who's more pure. His name is Jesus, and he's revealed through the power of the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. Heed to that, saints. Get the word of God in you. Don't let these false prophets in this church. If God would take me early at a young age or if I should leave, don't let the false teachers in this church preach what accords with sound doctrine in Titus 1-2. Or 2-1. Let it be known, guys. Fallacy. Beware of the religious power. Fallacy number two. Beware of religious abuse. This passage is usually seen as a sacrificial giving. I want to say out there that this section is very misleading. Because when we look at this specific section with widows, specifically this one lady, we don't know her name, we just know she's a widow. We look at this text as her being the greatest sacrificial giver. This is not what the text is saying. I would argue that in the context of what we just know from even early on in chapter 11, this is not about giving. Listen to me. I hope you guys, if you guys get anything, get this. This text that we're reading is not about tithes and offerings. But this is what I saw in the church. I grew up in a prosperity church. They say, if you want God to anoint you, you have to give like this woman. This is heva. This is sinful. That is not what the text is saying. Read the text. This passage, though I see some sense of sacrificial giving, it's not. Yes, the widow gives sacrificially. She gives all she has. But however, this passage points more to the religious abuse and system within the temple of God by these scribes. Are you guys with me? Or am I talking to myself? Right? Think about the content. Look at these religious abuse in the temple. In verse 41, Jesus observes this abuse. Look at this, read verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering basket. Many rich people put in large sums. These people Jesus is talking about, it's not just any people. He's specifically talking about the religious rulers. He's talking about the scribes. I want you guys to catch this. Because I think we're deceived in a lot of our church, even in Hilo today. I've heard messages on this text. I want you to see this, right? It's not about tithes and offering. Keep going on. Verse... Number two, the widow is a victim of the abuse. How do we know that? Read up in the text. One of the scribes rose, go to the house of the widows and steal from them. What do you think they stole? Money. Look at that, verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. Let's think about that, right? Absolutely, we can't buy nothing with a penny, right? Nothing, not even bubble gum, bro. All right, let's move on. In the context of verse 40, these scribes robbed widows. Therefore, the third thing happens in this temple in addressing this abuse. Jesus comes hard at these people. He comes hard and he addresses this abuse in verse 43. He says, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow 
has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Listen to me. If you just read the text from that and not read it from chapter 1 all the way to this part of chapter 12, or even you can go shorter to the end of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 12, you would read this out of context and you would be a false teacher like every prosperity teacher on TV today. This is why you got to study your word from beginning to end. Don't just say, oh, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Do you know what the context is about, Hawaiians? Do you know where, the, you know where this Jewish brother at when he stayed this, said this statement? He's in jail. Right, I know plenty of football players, right? Make a touchdown, go on the... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Brother, that's not what the text is about. Brother Paul is in Rome prison for advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he's just sharing his thoughts on the gospel. Yeah, but it makes people catch feelings. Like the king, like the emperor, Nero. Nero, who was the emperor at the time, who was the Caesar at the time, got ticked off that this guy would confront me. He's in prison. He's writing these letters, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. He's writing these letters, and it's all about suffering. But his suffering points him to something greater and grander than his suffering. His blessed sufferer, Jesus, who was on the cross, who died for our sins, who was buried, who did not stay buried, who rose again on the third day, and who was seen in 40 days preaching the kingdom of God. And then they saw him ascend into heaven, and he said he will descend someday. That is the suffering we talk about. When we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, guess what? I can do all things through Christ no matter who's the president. I can do all things through Christ no matter who's my spouse. I can do all things through Christ no matter who I am because we always point the finger at everybody when all the issue is me. Oh, that was one breath. Pray for me. That, that's the truth. These false teachers abuse these widows. So why do you think the widows gave? Not simply because it was not a sacrifice, but because they feared these false teachers. The scholars said these false teachers would beat these women, these widows, if they did not do what they did. Jesus is confirming that this widow is giving much more honorable gift. And that's what I love a bit. Though she is threatened, though this widow, right, knows that what's happening is wrong, she's still giving to the Lord. Why? Because she knew that her gift was bigger than a threat from a pure old human being. This gift was going to be reminded that those who truly belong to Christ, no matter the circumstances, will live their lives out big for the sake of the gospel. Whether it's one cent, one penny, hundred penny, it don't matter because the issue is not my wallet. The issue is humanity's heart. Humanity needs a new heart, and God came to give us a new heart. Ezekiel, Ezekiel said, right, that God would replace this heart of stone with a new heart of flesh in the old Hebrew language. That is the Holy Spirit. God's giving us the Holy Spirit today. So we don't give out of compulsion. We don't give because my pastor Macau was going to beat me up. No, we give because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish, will have everlasting life. Here's a reality truth in the context of our setting. The scribes demanded for people like this poor widow to give sacrificially while they gave out of their abundance. Hada, I know for some of you, I know some of you dealt with this same issue. You are the widow in this text, but move on. And some of us, we may be the scribes in this text. These scribes' abundance flowed from their abuse and manipulation of poor widows. They did not feel the sacrifice as the widow did. So it was easy for these religious rulers to give out of their abundance because they stole from these widows. I've never understood this text this way. I've always understood this text as being a sacrificial manner that I should give with all my heart, body, and I get it, right? But it was actually addressing the corruption of this religious chaos and system that's in the church today. This was evil. 
This was the religious system and the practice in the temple. Why do you think in chapter 11, Jesus flipped tables? Why do you think in chapter 11, Jesus whipped these people out of the temple? Because the system was bust up. The system was evil. Jesus is calling out this evilness. Therefore, we should be calling out this evilness too. The widow's heart, even in the midst of this abuse, she gave willingly, sacrificially, as Jesus proclaimed. I would like to believe that this woman still trusted with her final coins, even in the midst of her abuse. And though she was abused, she trusted the Lord God. She practiced, listen to me, this is why we got to understand in context, right? Coach Ian preached this a couple weeks ago. Guess what she's practicing right now? The Shema prayer. Look up in chapter 12. What is the greatest commandment? That you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your body, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your what? Strength. That is not what she's practicing. She's already practicing that. Guess what she's practicing? The second commandment. That you shall love your enemies like yourself. I don't know if you're feeling the Holy Spirit right now in this text, but I'm feeling them right now. What's going on right now is that she is loving her enemies. Who's her enemies? These scribes who's beating her, who's stealing from her. And she says, I'm going to love you. How am I going to show my love to you? I'm still going to give even if you're a stealer. I'm going to give graciously. I'm going to give mercifully. I'm going to give willingly. Why? Because the God I serve has called me not just to love him, but to love evil people like you. How can I get up every Sunday to preach these hard sermons? Understand that half of you won't come back next Sunday. Because I will love the Lord God. We will love the Lord God. With all our heart, our body, our mind, our soul and strength. Whether I get an applause or not. We will love the Lord God. And in addition, we will love people where they're at. And lead them to where they need to be. Not because of what they give to the church. But because what God has given to the sinner. Grace. Mercy. Everlasting love. Jesus says in 44, verse 44, for all for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Which brings us to our final reality. Here's the final truth that I want you to hold on and take home with you. And this is where we have hope. Jesus destroys this religious system. This is why we've got to keep reading the scriptures verse by verse. Because the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. You got to read them all the way through. Don't stop there in chapter 12. You got to keep reading through chapter 13. I want to end with the first two verses of chapter 13 in connection with how Jesus destroys this religious system in the temple. Mark accounts of this. He says, and as Jesus came out of the temple, this is Passion Week. This is one of the reasons why this brother got crucified in the next two days. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He's talking about the temple. And Jesus, I want to put in their paraphrase, drops the hammer. Jesus drops the hammer. He says this, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn down. Jesus keeps this promise. A few days later, Jesus takes the cross. And in Matthew's account, chapter 27, in Mark's account, in chapter 15, where we'll be in a, in a couple, maybe next year, and in Luke's account, in chapter 23, they all write about what happened on the cross. When Jesus took his final breath, before that, he said these words, tetelestai. In Hawaiian, that means all power. All right? It is finished. And it says that Jesus in his sovereignty, in his lordship, he gave up his breath. You guys got to understand that. The humans never give up his breath. He gave up his breath. When Jesus took his last breath, you can read it in these accounts, three things happened. The first thing that happened, right, 
It was dark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. People thought it was an eclipse. Historians like Josephus wrote that he thought it was an eclipse. It was supernatural. Secondly, you guys ready for this? Read it. People started coming out of the grave. They started walking around. Now, now, we say, why does that not happen today? Because that was a reminder of eschatology. These humans coming out of the grave, was, and they disappeared, the Bible says. We don't see them again, but it was a reminder that someday this risen Christ, this, this dead Christ will come back and take us from the grave, or take us from this earth. This earth is considered a grave. But there's one more thing that took place, specifically in these three accounts. The veil that separated the inner court from the Holy of Holies broke in two. And it broke in two because there was a mass earthquake that took place. And for some reason, something supernatural took place, right? It was only this part of the temple in the city that was completely destroyed. Or is this a sign of Jesus destroys this religious system. Saints of God, he keeps his promises, doesn't he? God cannot lie because that's out of his character. He's a God who's honest. If he says something, he's going to do it. This is why I don't trust your televangelists. I don't care how popular they are. Trust the scriptures. Test it out for yourself. Three out of the four gospel accounts of this destruction of the temple. But one thing that is certain, though only a few of the gospel talks about the birth of Jesus, right, like Matthew and Luke, every gospel talks about the death of Jesus and his resurrection. So how should we respond, right? Here's how we should respond. Here's your action step. We need to study God's word biblically. And what I want us to define, this is, this is, our, this is what you got to do. When you go home, you got to study the Word. You can't just trust me on this pulpit. You can't just trust people on TV or in books. you got to ask God to speak to you. So what I want to do is I want to give you a definition of a significant theological term and an action step on how you live that out, right? And it's the term biblical theology. What is biblical theology, right? The word theology derives from two words out of the Greek, right? Right, Theo, right, which is God, and Logos, which is study or word. How do we study the word? Let me write this down. For, let me say this to you. Biblical theology focuses on understanding the Bible on its own. It relies on its original setting, which deals with explaining each book of the Bible on its own terms, while tracing the storyline of the entire Bible from beginning to end. It values the unique contribution of each author and section of scriptures. Ultimately revealing God's progressive historical redemption plan for sinners through Jesus Christ. I've said this earlier in the sentences. Here's two ways you can approach biblical theology. One is right, one is wrong. Let me go the right way. Exegesis. The word exegesis, it's up on the screen. It means, right, to lead from the text. Meaning we're looking at the text and we're letting the text speak to us based on its analysis, its observation, its interpretation, its correlation, its application. The wrong way is called eisegesis, and this is where I have been wrong for many years. And many of us will wrong. That's why I get nervous when you guys put quotes on Instagram and Facebook of scriptures and you don't understand the proper hermeneutic process of that verse. Because it doesn't mean what you think it means most of the time. Isagias doesn't mean to lead from the text. It means to lead into the text. What are you leading into from? Your own mana'o. Your own experiences. Your own traditions. Now, now, is this wrong completely? No, but it's not primary. If somebody tells me that they don't have a hunger for the Word of God and all that, that's, my, that's a concern for me. Because when you hunger for God's Word, you're not just hungering for words on a page. You're hungering for the nature of God Himself. 
this is, guys, I'm going to promise you, this is the only way God reveals himself to you today. Like, you can get all the dreams, all the signs, and all the wonders you want. But if it's not in accordance with this, then all it is, is the devil's tactics to steer you away from the scripture. I promise you that. So you're telling me that all the Christians that had cancer and believed God for their healing, but did not be freed from the cancer and went and died, you're telling me they didn't have enough faith. That's not what the scripture says. Maybe it was because of that cancer that God showed his sovereignty in the life of that believer. His goodness, his faithfulness. You guys do know every one of us going to kick the bucket, right? How do I know that? Adam is dead. Jesus is alive. Herod is dead. Jesus is alive. Right? Listen to me. Paul, Peter, Jesus is alive. Let's go to the crazy people, right? Hitler, Jesus, he's dead. Jesus is alive. Napoleon, he's dead. Jesus is alive. Now just go step on toes for your Hawaiians. Kamehameha. He did. But Jesus is alive. I will die. Jesus is alive. But thanks be to God that those who truly belong to him will be caught up with him forever and ever. So there's some of the things I want. Four approaches in this exegesis way of studying the scriptures. Study the books of the Bible, right? Versus topics of the Bible. So when you go home today, stop doing this whole, I want to look at God's love for me. Get out of that. Get out of that topical mindset. I'm not saying it's wrong, but if you want to go deeper in biblical theology, do books of the Bible. Why? Because you're going to understand context. Context is everything. In the Gospel of Mark, we would have not known about this widow's two coins if we didn't read from chapter 11. We would think that it was all about tithes and offerings, but it was not about tithes and offerings. It was about a broken system in the temple that was chaotic in religious form. So some ways, here's some practical ways to approach these verses. One, pray and ask God to speak to you. I'm not saying to feel a feeling, oh yeah, oh God, oh God, oh I'm falling back. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, right? Pray God to speak to you the only way he speaks to Christians today, through his word. Two, read the entire book straight through first. Don't take notes. Read the entire book straight through first. Then come back to the beginning of the book and do the following. Look, next time read it slower and take notes. What is the setting? Who are the characters mentioned? What words stand out? What locations are mentioned? What is the conflict in the story? What is the resolution in the story? And then lastly, this is where everybody tried to get to at the first step. Nuh-uh. After a close tightly examination of the scriptures then you can apply it and you know how you're going to apply it go back to the top pray and ask God to teach you, read the entire book we think the application is more about what I do for others no, the application it starts with you, how do I study the scriptures so what we're going to do this week maybe a couple times this week, I want to give you some techniques and, and, and methods and disciplines on how we study the scripture when we prepare a message. We don't just preach a random text to you. I will be literally, I'm not saying that God can do it, but because we're so caught up in a high view of God's word, it's going to be very rare that you hear one of us say, oh, this morning God told me to change my message. Now, God can do that. Don't get me wrong. God can do that. Don't get me wrong. But the way we are strict to expository preaching is through the text, not through my feelings. You notice that something big is going this, this week and we didn't address it right today. Because it doesn't matter. This matters. This matters. Therefore, as we study the text, I believe in application. I'm not saying application is wrong, but I say it has to be the final result. For the next three weekends, we're going to end our November series in a new series called Make a Difference. And we're going to talk about specific stories in the scripture. Now I'm moving back to, we rarely do this, but I'm going to do it. 
We're going to go to a topical format. Now that we understand this expository exegesis stand, but now we're going to go to this approach. Like I said, we don't disagree with all topical messages. We just say if you want a greater understanding of Scripture, start with books of the Bible verse by verse. Expository. Expose upon that. And we're going to talk about specific things, right? How to live generously with your children. How to live generously with the position God has given you in the community. Because if all we learn is theology and doctrine and biblical truth, and we do nothing with it, we call that in this church spiritual obesity. Uh, I'm already big as it is physically. I don't want to be big. You know, I want to give it out. The gospel that has been shared with us is not a gospel that needs to be stored, but it's a gospel that needs to be shared with others. And for you, if you struggled with condemnation of giving, hear from me. No give. All these things that we talk about, it has to be from the heart, guys. Give from the heart. Because when you give from the heart, there is no percentage on top of that. You only give from how Christ gives you. And let that free you, guys. I know that's what frees me. Because Scripture says, God, we love you. And we thank you. That your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray for the one in this room that may be having tension with some of this theology and doctrine that I boldly professed. I pray they wouldn't run from it, but they would run to you even closer. And they would devour your scripture for themselves. They will seek you. They will read the text in an exegesis way. They will forsake the eisegetical way of reading scripture. May their study habits be a study of your grace, a study of your mercy. God, we love you. We thank you. We admonish you. For you are worthy of all praise.